If you have, we're in the midst of a study of First Peter. We're in the fourth chapter now. I'm going to pick up the reading in verse 7, a portion that we began to look at last week. I didn't get as far in it as I was expecting, like big surprise. But anyway, that's kind of how it turned out. But I want to read the verses just to set the context up for our study today. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, guide us as we have a time to be in your word this day. As always, we are so thankful that in your mercy you're a God who has spoken that we have somewhere to turn for real truth. In this time, through the working of your Spirit, illumine our hearts as we study what you've gone to the trouble of saying and making available for us to see. Give us focus, and we'll thank you for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. These verses in the fourth chapter, are focusing in on the importance of living with an end times sort of mindset. The end of all things is at hand, therefore. And again, that word therefore, as we saw last week and previously, whenever it's there, you better, it's linking it to something that's being covered. There's implications, applications seen. Uh, Our life choices, our priorities, I guess you could even say it that way, God intends them to be influenced by our grasp of the era that we find ourselves in. Our priorities should be impacted by our sense of time. We're in the end of all things at hand sort of time. We talked about how that terminology, end of all things, end times, is used in two ways in the New Testament. One, it's used in a general way to describe that entire period after the first coming of the Lord Jesus till the second coming of the Lord Jesus, because that's the final sort of piece in God's unfolding timeline of history. But it's also used in a more specific sense in certain passages to describe uh, those events and activities immediately preceding uh, those things leading to the second coming. And so you, you see it's, there's, there's two eras in focus here. The whole era of what we'll call the church, us, uh, post-cross and resurrection, but also those things that are going to be part of that conclusion of that era in the timetable of God's plan for history. Whether we're in the specific second sense or the first sense, we're in it's somehow, all right? So everything that's being said here is applicable to us. My sense is both are true and both are applicable to us because I think we are uh, in approaching anyway the culmination. But that's just, that's not exposition. That's 
assumption. Uh, there's, it may or may not be true, but it's not, it is exposition, not assumption, that we're in that general period, in that time, final time frame, post-cross and resurrection, leading up to the second coming of Christ. So, in that, God says there's some things I want to be priorities. I don't want you, in the understanding of that era, to be out on a sell all you have, sit on a hillside, wait for something to happen. No, the priorities for us are to be to to pray, to love, to show hospitality, and use gifts. And so we began to look at those pieces last time. Uh, we didn't get any further than this, but I talked about that first piece, which prioritizing prayer in our lives. And prayer, uh, in its most simple sense, is just simply conversation with God, speaking with God. Uh, listening to his voice. And we saw, in order for that to become all that God intends it to be in our life, we need to have self-controlled minds, saffron in the Greek, which refers to the idea of right-mindedness. The same word saffron in the Greek is translated in, uh, in Mark chapter 5, verse 15, talking about Jesus' healing of the demoniac. And it says, and the people came back and were so surprised because the demoniac was now in his right mind, saffron. Meaning he was seeing life right. He was, he was responding to life properly. Uh, God says, you need to be in your right mind to pray properly. Uh, you need to see the world as it really is. And brothers and sisters, that isn't a question of whether you have 20-20 vision. That's a question of whether you see the world through the lens of Scripture. That's the only way you're going to know what the world really is. That You have to see it as God's revealed it to us. And so we recognize it in that session. So we're not going to pray if we, the way we should be praying in these end times if we don't have a biblical mentality. We've got to have the scriptures as our lens to make sense out of things. And I don't mean just to make sense out of some current event. I mean to make sense out of the world, out of the culture in which we find ourselves. And secondly, he said we need to be sober-minded in order to pray properly. The Greek word was nepho in that case, which means literally to be free of intoxicants or free of distractions. God says, listen, I don't want you having your mind all dazed out and disoriented by any kind of intoxicant, you know, drink, drugs, or whatever. Don't do that. But at the same time, don't get your mind all distracted uh, because you allow circumstances to so consume you that you can't see the world properly. He says, I want you not to be distracted and dazed. I want you to be understanding. And he says, you, to the degree that you do that, you're going to pray better. You're going to pray more frequently. In fact, you're more than likely to say, I can't go through today without praying because I'm actually seeing things the way they are. I need God's help. I need to seek his wisdom. I need his enablement. Uh, well, at any rate, that's where we were last week. Verse 8 went on. It said, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. The second of these mindsets, these end-time mindsets, is to lead us to prioritize loving the brothers and sisters. And he frames it, God frames it for us in a way, lest any of us start to think that maybe that love's not all that important. He says, above all, you know, I mean, the other things he's telling us about are commands, we need to pay attention to them, but he says, all right, let's, even among these things, let's prioritize stuff a bit. Above all, you know, of first importance, check this off your to-do list first, love one another. The word love here, by the way, uh, translates the Greek word agape, or a form of that word. 
talking about that divine selfless enablement, that selfless love. 1 Corinthians 13 is the descriptive passage helping us to know what agape love is. It's important that we see that's what he's saying, because he's not saying here that we should have affection per se, although he does other places. In fact, earlier in 1 Peter he did, that God wants us to have family, phileo type of affection for one another. But here he's saying, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really calling for a 1 Corinthians 13 sort of response to one another. I want an attitude of selflessness, the putting of the needs above of the others above your own. Above all, I want you to be this way. And I want you to be earnest in it. I, I want you to keep loving each other earnestly. Actenes in the Greek literally means to stretch out. It, 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 has the, it was used in the Greek language to describe something being pulled taunt that was loose. Actenes. So what does it mean when it's translated by the English word earnestly? It means to show intensity, fervency, strenuousness. Stretch out the agape toward other people. It's, a, it's, it's saying, I want it to be more than attitudinal. It has to be attitudinal, but not only attitudinal. It's, it's got to be action-oriented. It needs operationalized in actions. So it's more, you have to have the right attitude to have that happen, but you need to have more than that attitude. You can't just say, well, I feel, I feel pretty selfless toward people. Then do selfless things. All right? That's what it's saying. You know, push yourself, stretch it, make it taunt. You know, be doing it earnestly. Now, Why? Why does God add that piece? Because you would think, just saying, use agape love, I mean, the scripture tells us a lot about that love. You would think, well, that'd be enough. I mean, we see it defined, we, see, we recognize it, it's part of the fruit of the Spirit, and so forth. That ought to be enough. Why, why does he go beyond that? And here, I believe, is the practical reason. Because he says, keep on loving each other earnestly, since or because, and I think probably in this case, because is even a better translation in the English, uh, because love covers a multitude of sins. Why am I commanded to love with earnestness? Because agape is tied to forgiveness. That's why. I have to have agape love to respond properly when I'm wronged by a brother or sister in Christ. Only an earnest agape will force me to do it right. All right? Only an earnest Agape, putting feet to it, will enable me to respond that way. And by the way, this passage is talking to brothers and sisters. It's not that God doesn't want us to love our enemies, love the world or something. Uh, in a, other places address that question. But here he's talking about brothers and sisters in the church family. This is, this is a body life challenge in this particular part of the scriptures. Here's the point. God, the ultimate realist, looks at a body of believers gathered together as a church family, and he says, now I want you to understand something about this. I want you in it, first of all. I need you to be part of the church family. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Demonstrate commitment to one another and all that. He says, but I want you to understand something as you're doing that, which is being obedient to me. The people you're committing yourself to will fail you at times. Uh, The people you're committing yourself to could hurt you at times. Not looking for shows of hands on this, all right? Just, just posing it out there. 
And he says, you know, this group that I'm calling you to be a part of, they, some, the people that are in that may need your forgiveness at times. So you need earnest agape to make that possible. By the way, because that's an inevitable reality, the typical way that a Christian tries to deal with that is to be part of something so big you're never close enough to anybody that anything they do really impacts on you. If you're not close enough to anybody, then you don't need to forgive anybody because you can just kind of ignore everything that's going on around you. It's when you're close that intersection points happen with people. And God says, I want intersection points all over the place. I want you so close. I want you so integrated that you intersect each other's lives a lot. And therefore are likely to fail each other and hurt each other, even inadvertently, a lot. I think, by the way, accepting that reality, going back to verse 7, sort of proves that we're in our right mind. Remember, you've got to have that right mind, that uh, sophron. There's no shortage of demonic being out of your right mind examples in Christian literature. I wish I could, I thought about doing this, but I knew we wouldn't have time this morning. But if I went back over books that I've read over the last 50 plus years in ministry, that are going out and talking to people about how they should be treating and feeling toward one another and how church life and fellowship is supposed to be. It's all the opposite of sophron. It shows nobody's in their right mind. And they're laying out examples for people that have no possibility of being realized except in some sort of self-mutual deception. It isn't going to happen. And God's a realist. He says, no, 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 no. Here, here's the deal. I've called you into this relationship, and in it, you're going to get hurt. And you're going to hurt somebody. One of the things I try to do in uh, premarital counseling and then later in marriage counseling is to say, let's get rid of all of the the fantasy. You're going to get hurt, and you're going to hurt each other. The issue isn't whether. The issue is now what, you know. When it happens, what do we do? It's the way it is in the church. It's not whether, it's when and what. You know, when that happens, what do we do? How do we work it out? We could say, well, I decided in all parts of my life, I'm going to work it out by never getting close to anybody. And that is what a lot of people do. That's not a good answer. Not a good answer. Forgiveness is important. Proverbs 10:11 says, "Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers over all offenses." And that love, uh, it's a Hebrew passage, but in the Septuagint, it uses the word agape to describe that. The the the, Ingl- the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, "Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you." Pretty important. Pretty important to be forgiving. So, how well you doing with the covering over stuff, you know, uh, because that's what this is about. How how you doing? How's the earnest agape working out? You know, uh, covering over stuff, covering over failure. Hey, here's here's a couple facts. These are soft run kind of stuff. Okay, show you're in your right mind. 
Number one, in a fallen world, and I hope that's not news to you that we're in one. Uh, that's, that's what we're in. Uh, there's no church so spiritual you'll never need to cover over hurting from somebody. I mean, there just isn't. It doesn't matter how, how effective a speaker the pastor is, how visible they are in the Christian celebrity area. <laughs> there aren't any churches out there that are so spiritual you never need to cover over being hurt by people. That's just the way it is. And the other side of it is this. In a fallen world, there's no church that can truly be spiritually and relationally healthy if forgiving isn't going on. You follow it? Now, having said that, let me say, some people can be doing something in such a fashion that it's so dysfunctional because of their actions that even if you forgive, you can't have a relationship. That's true in human relationships in general. So let's not avoid that. God's, but then those, the Bible gives us other ways to address. If somebody is doing something so destructive to a group, to the church and to people, there's ways to confront that. But getting back to the forgiveness question, God says, listen, no church is so spiritual you don't have to forgive, so don't do any shopping around. You're not going to find them. And then secondly... No church is going to be healthy if you keep on thinking, I can get away without forgiving. Uh, if we don't forgive, the Bible says, bitterness happens. It isn't like a potential, it's a reality. When you don't forgive, you become bitter. It's one leads to the other. And bitterness, bitterness destroys root of bitterness springs up, as Hebrews tells us, and defiles many. Well, you want a good description of much of the church from the time of the New Testament to the present time? Defiled. The, the enemy wants to do that, but he doesn't hardly need to work at it because the Christians cause it. We defile ourselves because we let bitterness spring up in dealing with people. Here's the key. If I refuse to forgive, I end up alienating somebody and getting alienated from them. And one of the things First Peter's been telling us is that the believer, by the nature of being redeemed, is alienated from the world. I mean, that's the nature. We're not in any, we're not part of it anymore. We're aliens, exiles, sojourners. The believer, by definition, is already alienated to some degree in their life because God says, now you're alienated from the world. If that believer is also alienated from their church family, they have nobody. Nobody. To be an alienated alien is to truly be isolated in your life. And brothers and sisters here, I'm talking fellow North Coast here. None of us needs to be alienated aliens. That's a bad place to be. We're imperfect here. But, remember, there's forgiveness. Let's, let's work with that. There's a worse problem, and that's to be an alienated person. We need each other. That's why God says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You need each other. You need each other. Well, enough on that. He says, now show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Another of these end-time mindsets, 
should cause us to prioritize hospitality. God wants hospitality to be an important characteristic of the church family in these end times. All right, you see, that's the connection here. That's the thread. In Romans 12, 13, he says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Philoxenos in the Greek means two words, really. Phileo, love, affection. Xenos, stranger. Pretty straightforward word. Hospitality means you show affection toward the stranger. The person who, by definition, shouldn't be getting the affection, you make a decision to give the affection to. So it's affection for the stranger. Hospitality. To commit oneself to show warmth and affection to somebody outside your normal household. Straightforward word means to treat somebody, and again, the context here is brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not talking about how we treat the world around us. We're talking about the family. And he says, I want you to treat one another in a way where you treat the brothers and sisters as if they were actually in your household. Family life. So how are we doing on philosophy? Are we... uh, is it proven by the way we treat each other as brothers and sisters in North Coast? Do you, do you see the brothers and sisters as family? Because that's what it means. If you don't, you can't carry out the command, because the command isn't a matter of putting a meal out, although I don't think there's anything wrong with that, by the way. But, uh, but the, the command isn't that. The command is a, is a richer sort of word. Uh, by the way, a little Greek lesson for you here. Philoxenos, hospitality, is not a direct synonym for entertaining. The direct synonym for entertaining is amusing. So entertainment has more to do with amusing. That's not what this is about. Uh, What's that mean? Besides an interesting Greek lesson. Let me give you I'll tell you what it means practically. If I think showing hospitality means entertaining, then I'm going to go about, if I have people around or invite people over to my home, I'm going to go about uh, amusing them, uh, entertaining them when they're there, uh, impressing them perhaps. I'm going to focus on that instead of interacting with them. Philoxenos means I want to make people feel welcome, not entertained. I want to make them feel part of the family. I want to interact. We're getting together to interact, to share, to care. To equate hospitality and entertainment actually almost prevents Philoxenos from occurring. Can't do two things at once generally very well. And uh, so he's not talking about, you know, having a Martha Stewart tutorial here on how best to treat each other when we, you know, come in. You know, here's, here's, the, here's the menu and here's the right way to serve it. Now, that's not what it's about. You follow the point? So that's not what God, can you imagine God saying, well, you know, the end times is important. 
history is coming to a close, I really want you to be careful what hors d'oeuvres you're serving, you know, when you get together. I mean, it'll be foolhardy. And yet, if you think that's sort of what hospitality is all about, or at least part of it, that's what you'll be concerned about. And God says, no, you just need to be together. Say, all I got is cereal, you know. So what? Cereal's okay. Let's talk. Let's care. Let's face it together. Say, well, I don't have the leaks all the leaves all raked out there. Well, you got two rakes. I'll come out with you. Let's we'll, we'll talk while we do it. Let's truly relax in us. Let's act like we're in it together. It's not sin to entertain anybody, by the way. Don't, don't misunderstand me here. It's just that that's not what the command is. So don't miss it, that the command is something very different from that. And by the way, he, he says, do all of this without grumbling. Uh, this grumbling word is an interesting word. You know what it literally means? To mutter under the breath. If you break the Greek word down, to mutter under your breath. Uh, means, I'll do it, but, you know, a little bit of muttering under the breath to get from A to B. You know, so I want you to do it that way. Don't do it, but, but harbor a secret displeasure about the fact you got to do it. No, no, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Hospitality to the brothers and sisters, the church family, the brothers, the brethren, should never be a hardship. God's not presuming on us uh, by saying, well, I want you to do this. He's like, oh, no, my gifts aren't there. It's like somebody saying, well, my gift's not to be in a family. What kind of stupidity is that? I mean, who, who needs a gift to be in the family? Now, any family... There's differing talents, differing abilities. Uh, generally, in my family, they didn't request that I make something for any of the gatherings. Uh, so there's different, different things. But you don't have a gift to be in a... You follow? Let's think rationally in sober-minded ways. The brothers and sisters are our spiritual family, so let's treat each other that way. Well... The end times mindset also gives us an attitude toward our spiritual gifts. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength God supplies, so that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If I really understand I'm in the end times, it gives me a seriousness about my spiritual gifts. It gives me a seriousness in the sense of wanting to use them. God has given these spiritual gifts, these supernatural enablements to the life of his children. tells us here each one's received one of those. Nobody's left out. Can't come before God and say, hey, I think you forgot something. Uh, now, we may well come before God and say, well, I saw you didn't forget something, except there was something I wanted, it looks like you forgot. That could happen, because you want a different gift than you've got. But you didn't leave anybody out. You've got some enablements. Uh, 
And he says, I, I gave you this stuff to serve one another as good stewards of that. It's part of how my varied grace works out in a church. What's that mean? Well, here I'll tell you theologically what that means. In this world, not talking about saving grace now, but in this world, part of the way the grace of God intends in the sense of enablement and, and help works out in a people is he chooses to work through people to do it. And if they don't do it, his grace will not be seen in terms of enablement in a group of people. And they say, well, again, God work around people? Well, sure, but he chooses not to. It's sort of like saying, well, I know you've given me the Holy Spirit to give me strength, but I'm just going to try to do it on my own. And God says, well, good luck. You know, the, the first aid kit's over here. You know, it won't take long before you need that because I don't give you an alternative pathway. You need the Holy Spirit's enablement. It's the same here. Uh, there's a pathway to finding what is needed to be strong and healthy and growing. These enablements are what help that to be the case. It isn't just the good wishes of people. It's the exercise of the enablements. Not to use the enablement cuts off grace from the church. And again, I'm not talking saving grace here. That's a different question. We're talking about here and now the enablement to face what life brings. God gives us varied gifts. Gifts that differ. Romans 12.6 says, having gifts that differ according to the grace that he's chosen to give to us. There's different types of gifts. When we look here at the First Peter passage, we're really looking at sort of a representative, not exhaustive passage, but a representative passage to introduce us to what he means by that. What do you mean by gifts, Lord? He says, well, here's what I mean. Here's some examples of how these enablements work out. And he gives us some examples here. But, of course, we've got to look at 1 Corinthians 12. We've got to look at Ephesians 4. We've got to look at, first, at Romans chapter 12 and on and on the list goes to get a good grasp, a fuller grasp of what God means by these things. Uh, the issue of whether there are some gifts that have a set purpose for a set period of time is really a separate question. I think that's true, and I think there are certain gifts that were just for a set time, but not spiritual gifts in general. Because if that's how God is dispensing his grace to the church, he didn't cut off some of those, assuming they didn't need that grace for most of the year. There are some that were there for the affirmation of the gospel message itself. Yeah, I can see that. I'll accept that. But he's also said a lot of these other things are tied to enablement necessary to face life. And he says here something about it. He says, my intention in doing all of this is to use them to serve one another. These gifts are others-oriented. They're not self-oriented. I have never received a spiritual gift from God, and you did not receive a spiritual gift from God in order to make me feel good. I did not receive a spiritual gift from God. You did not receive a spiritual gift from God in order for me to feel spiritual. I didn't receive a gift from, spiritual gift from God. You did not receive a spiritual gift from God in order for me to grow as a disciple. I received a spiritual God, a gift from God. You received a spiritual gift from God in order to help the family he placed me in. It's others-oriented. That's what it's about. Which, by the way, dismisses a huge amount of emphasis on gifts. 
which tends to frame them all in the terms, well, here's some way of some spirituality happening in your life, some experience of the Spirit or whatever. That's not what they're talking about here. Although, indirectly, there's an experience, I suppose, out of that. He gave the gift so that we would serve others. And he says, I want you to be good stewards of it. Faithful stewards. Steward is an administrator or manager. Quite frankly, that's what the word means. Question is, are you a good steward and manager of God's grace (laughs) as he's dispensed it? You know, are you using it? Well, it's sort of like, you know, I'm on the construction site. I got this new drill. Are you using it on the construction? I thought, well, no. I'm kind of saving it, you know, for... No, if you got the tool, you're supposed to use it. Uh, and God says, that's the way these are. If you got it, use it. Use it. Are you a good steward? Now, by the way, just in passing, because I'm running out of time, but he, he identifies sort of two categories of gifts here. And again, this isn't the only passage dealing with it, and I, my purpose isn't to talk about spiritual gifts in detail today, but he talks about two things about them. He says one t- sort of category of spiritual gifts fit into what we'll call speaking gifts, where when one uses them, they are to be one as one speaking the very words of God, is the way the ESV translates that. The second category of those gifts uh, that he gives us here is ones where they are gifts for the serving of the family. Uh, And he says in that case, those gifts, make sure you're carrying them out by the strength that God supplies. So let me come back to that. Speaking gifts. Gifts that are linked to God's word and the sharing of God's word. Teaching and exhorting and understanding and wisdom and evangelism and counseling and so forth. Uh, using God's word. Many people have those gifts. It's not just the pastor-teacher has a gift of teaching. Although a pastor-teacher has to have a gift of teaching. But the pastor-teacher gift is a person gift, a combination of gifts, uh, as First Peter, or, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 4 identifies some people gifts that constitute a cluster. Uh, but a lot of people... God has gifted them to teach the word of God. And, and for those people, they better be speaking the very words of God. Uh, if that wasn't the case, I'd have to be out with the kids' connection every Sunday. Or I'd have to have you wait while I went out with them. I'd have to be in every house church. Now, sadly, there's some pastors so confused about all of that that that's what they think they have to do. They won't let anybody do any teaching other than that. But, brothers and sisters, that misrepresents, maybe well-intended, but it misrepresents the board. That's not the case. Lots of us have that. But if I'm in a place where I can exercise some of that, I better be darn sure I'm sharing God's truth, not my own ideas. If I'm in a place where I have a chance to share... I want to work hard not to mix my words and ideas with God's word. I want 2 Timothy 2.15 to be real, where I've studied to show myself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, who's rightly handling that word. So whatever those other roles are as they work out within the framework of a church, let's make sure we're biblical. If the pattern set for people, even in the pulpit, is one where it's not so much biblical but exhortative, going to get reproduced everywhere else too in that way 
Uh, it needs to be biblical. I guarantee you, we try to focus on the Word when we're working with the kids. We try to focus on the Word when we have other things going on because that's what it's about. The other thing, if I fall into the, some of these things that are serving the church, like giving and helps and mercy and administration and on the list could go, once again, my purpose isn't to detail all of those today, but say there's gifts that fall into that sort of category. They're the keys to meeting the practical, spiritual needs within a church family, helping in those ways. I want to make sure that I'm using those gifts by the strength God supplies. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Carrying out the task with the strength God supplies. Not only the gift God supplies. Because it's possible for us to try to carry out our gift in our strength. Once again, I won't ask for a show of hands, but it happens, you know. And, uh, and God says, no, no, I want, I want you doing it in my strength. That'll supply you. It's not just the gift, but how I try to carry it out. That's the issue here. Whether it's teaching or supplying. Well, finally. Finally, he says, realize the goal of using all of this in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The goal of the spiritual gift segment here is praise and glory to God. That's what it's supposed to be about. Our gifts, whether they fit into the speaking categories, into the service categories, our gifts should always be directing people's attention to God, not us. I mean, that's the goal. That's the intent of it. So those who are exercising gifts are called upon to do it, make sure they're giving God glory and honor. It's a good diagnostic tool here. Ask yourself, when you see... Any exercise of gifts, not just a gift in the pulpit, but any of these that we're talking about. Are you struck, are you captivated by the gift user or the gift giver when you see them? What does your attention go to? Does the gift in the exercise of it direct people to God or to us? Does it lead people to praise of God? Or does it lead them to some measure of praise for the gift possessor? So, well, that makes me feel real uncomfortable, Lord. I think it's supposed to. I, I, I think <laughs> it's supposed to. And all of us can come before the Lord and say, i got, got a ways to go on some of that, Lord. He says, aha, uh-huh. I see glimpses of you being in your right mind. Sophron. Let's be in our right mind. Say, well, I'd, when I'm in the right mind, I'd like kind of discouraged sometimes with what I see. Great, that's a step toward growth then. I want to see, I want to get going. I want to be where God wants me to be. I don't want to live in la-la land in illusion. I want to see it true. I want to see it right. And then we can begin to build right in it. Well, end times mindset.
actually finish those. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for a chance to gather together with our family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for your word. Continue to work in us. Knit us together as a real family. We need your help in all the ways we've been talking about. And be with us in this week that we might each live lives that glorify you through your strength and enablement. Well, thank you for it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good to have you here today, everyone. God bless you.